Hello and welcome to a very special episode number 7 of the Global Lab. Welcome to episode 7. I am Martin. And I'm Steve. And you're not going to hear very much from us this week. Normally we would tell you a little bit about about what's going on in the world of global, global complexity and cities and technology. But this week, instead, we've got some fantastic interviews. I caught up with some people at the European Conference on Complex Systems that I think you're going to be very excited to hear from. And the first of these interviews is from Nicholas Peroni. So I'm here at the European Conference on Complex Systems in Vienna with our guest for this week. Nicola Perny, hello. And you're uh, working at the... ETH Zurich. I work halfway between biology and behavioural biology and, and physics, complex systems physics. So what, um, what does a behavioural biology have to do with complex systems? Well, surprisingly a lot. Um, there's, so the, this idea of, of complexity has been around for, for a long time and, and we are starting to know a lot better what is a complex system, um, what, I, what are the, the inner mechanisms of complex systems and in fact some of the most interesting complex systems to look at are just all around us. So there's this, so complex societies sort of pervade our environment and, and the way we, we live in groups, the way we sort of associate into, into groups is, is a very complex phenomenon. The main, the main idea uh, behind complexity is that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So if you take, if you take many very simple ants, you put them together, they create something that is, that is, that is a lot more powerful than just ants taken together. So there's this theme um, in bi- uh, behavioural biology that you study that of animals grouping together to accomplish more complex tasks and improve their survival rate. And is that the sort of topic that you've been interested in in your research? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that animals group together to, to solve more complex tasks, but in fact, they, you can say that they evolved the, the, the ability to be together, to live in groups, and to form those very complex groups, so that they could actually uh, handle those tasks better. How can we be so advanced now? How can we can we do so much when we started from so little? So you think actually by studying these animal groups we can actually learn something about the way that human cooperation enhances our, our, our existence? Totally. I think they the big mistake sometimes is to make a strong um, split between animals and humans because anyway uh, we are an animal species right and of course there's a lot there's a lot of differences between between uh, many or most animals and and us in the way we behave socially for example but my job is about finding universal patterns of universal behavioral patterns that are common between between the animal species I work on and and humans sometimes try to extrapolate uh, that's in the far future maybe but try to extrapolate uh, what we know what we learn about animal societies onto uh, human societies human groups I saw your talk earlier in the week on um, on bats and you were interested it seemed in the way that bats form different sizes of social groups is that right uh, so for example we study several colonies and there's a there's a big 
coming, there's about 40 individuals. And we found that inside the, the social network formed by, by this big colony of bytes when they, when they root together, um, there are these two, we call them cryptic, sort of hidden communities, so uh, very tightly connected groups in which individuals roost, so sleep preferentially with one another. Uh. And, and this might have to do with, uh, with the optimal group size that, um, well, the optimal group size in these species. So um, I'm extrapolating here a bit, I'm speculating that uh, in humans there is, a, there is something known as a Dunbar number. Um, the Dunbar number is the, is the estimated maximum number of social bonds, social uh, connections that uh, a person, a human person, can can have, can establish and maintain. So it's effectively the number of people that the human being can know? Yes, that, that's very much like this. Uh, so the, the maximum number of friends you can have, yeah. in a way, so close friends. And and obviously it has a lot to do with, with the, the, the size of your brain. In fact, you can try and relate it to social structures in, in other species. And what appears is that it could be that because because we find these communities in, in bats, in those species of bats, um, it could be that the, the Dunbar number, the maximum number of friends in, the, in these uh, social bats is about 20. So much smaller than human beings. Obviously, it has to be smaller because bats are not as as obviously clever. Bats <laughs> are not as cognitively capable right. as humans. But still, they surprise us when when showing their their amazing, fascinating social complexity. So you've also done a lot of uh, research on the on the social behaviour of, of mice, haven't you? Yes, completely. So something I've been talking about yesterday, for example, is uh, is the hierarchy that we see establishing in the, in the uh, social network of mice. So we start from the idea that the establishment and the maintenance of social groups uh, is based on fights, is based on aggressive interactions. And this is ubiquitous, and that's something that's very valid uh, for humans as well. So on some level you're saying that mice form gangs? Uh, not really gangs, but right. in fact it's all about the survival, the survival of the fetus, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are just, so mice have a have a strongly despotic society it is it is only the the most dominant individuals that will get to to access to mating partners and oh so it really is the strongest mice that get the girls yes exactly uh, most mice most adult mice will not get to to produce any offspring or mm. very few and there will be one or two that will produce like a hundred wow. and this is what we see in this in this population and that has a lot to do with with dominant status and so obviously we, we are we're interested in the way these these dominance hierarchies establish and so what we do is we we start from the idea that it's all based on conflict it's, it's all based on fights and we have these mathematical models of, of uh, dyadic, so one-to-one -one fights, and we see how different types of hierarchies can emerge from, from uh, similar similar context, so, so aggressive context, and, and what's surprising is that um, very different hierarchical structures, for example, the, the uh, layered structure you find with, with classes in social insects, or 
egalitarian structures like like we've just talked about in the in the bats or despotic structures like in mice uh, it's surprising that those very different structures can form in a very uh, similar context and so you're saying that that bats are quite egalitarian insects have a have a class system and yes. mice are incredibly despotic that's, that's fascinating uh, so it depends on what species always and and, yes. and I guess not all bats are egalitarian <laughs> right. uh, but in the in these species that we study it is a case and it's very interesting to see that in mice it's is totally different so what are the differences between these species that make them have such different social equality so according to, to the results that we have uh, there's a single parameter we call it Sigma there's a single parameter that says um, if you are bigger than me and if we fight what are, what are the chances I will still win in a fight against you okay, oh, okay. and so this this Sigma is the is the chance that I will have to, to win against you and by tweaking this this Sigma only a bit and leaving all parameters all other parameters of the model equal um, we see that we can have these uh, very different uh, hierarchical structures and some might correspond to that we see in mice some might correspond to that we see in bats so what do you think the big questions in your field are? So there's a, there's a long-standing question in, in behavioral biology that says, uh, or ecology says, uh, why do we live in groups? Why do, we, why do we form groups rather than just being alone? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a question that uh, can be answered rather well now with, with techniques and principles from, from evolutionary biology. And in fact, my question is a bit similar. My, my, my big question is how do we live in groups? Mm -hmm. How do we form these groups? What are in fact the, the local, the, the um, individual level uh, mechanisms that we, um, the individual level mechanisms by which we keep certain certain social bonds that allow uh, um, a large level, so macroscopic social group, to exist and stay stay cohesive and perform a certain function, certain task. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. with uh, Pauline Cottel from the University of Montpellier. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about your work, please? Yes, absolutely. I'm, uh, I have a background in uh, the geography uh, of risk and disaster. And uh, so in my PhD, I'm working on the link between disaster and crime and how a disaster can impact um, crime uh, in the short and in the long term and uh, more specifically, the geography of crime how crime is uh, locate, um, located uh, throughout the city and the surra surrounding areas. So um, yes, and New Orleans post-Katrina is my case study. So what's the most uh, dramatic uh, change you've seen post-Katrina to, to crime in New Orleans? Well, I would start actually not with crime, but more with uh, what happened after Katrina with, um, I mean, so socio-demographic change and especially especially change uh, regarding uh, housing since after Katrina uh, city officials uh, decided to close and uh, shut down all the public housings um, the 
public housing complex. And so what was the, the reasoning behind doing that? Well, actually, uh, if you look at the official reasons, uh, the public housing were uh, flooded very badly. Uh, like 80% of the city uh, was uh, underwater after Katrina. So they said, if you look in the media or official report, that uh, the building needed to be destroyed in order to uh, be rebuilt uh, in a better way. And, but the problem is, if you really investigate this case, you will see that uh, actually those kind of buildings, brick buildings, weren't that much destroyed by the floods, but, uh, but the floodings of the city. But um, what happened is that it's, it's, it's not just New Orleans, it's national trends, which means that uh, right now um, public housing complexes are um, concentrated so much troubles, uh, especially crime and violent crime, and they are considered as um, a perfect uh, environment of crime because of drug trade. Um, so was the, was the city effectively using this as a, as a way to try and well, cut out crime from the centre of the city? Yeah, actually it was a, uh, a very great opportunity, if I can put it this way, <laughs> for the city uh, because instead of having to deal with uh, moving people from housing for no reason and explain to people why they did this, the, flo the floating uh, just did it for them. So people had to move and then uh, they, they weren't allowed to come back. Actually, if you look at where are those public housing concentrated in, located in the city you will see that those public housing are located in the inner city and if you look at the trends as uh, a socio-demographic trends after Katrina what you see is that the inner city is getting more of a white area you also witness a suburbanization if you can say this way of poverty so, so does this movement of, um, of the poor to the suburbs mean that the suburbs are getting poorer or that the quality of life of poor people is in improving because they've got a bit more space and a bit more land and a better home? No, the quality of life of poor people is not getting better because when those people move to the suburb, actually it's getting worse for them because they are even further from where the jobs are located and those people don't have the means to pay for transportations. Mm -hmm. So it makes them even more isolated and vulnerable and it's, it's, really pro it's a real problem because people that were in the inner city even if they were living in very poor condition and actually they were close to where actually they could find jobs and work there and right now they are living uh, far from uh, places you can find jobs and they don't have the means to find transportations and in the United States you don't have uh, public transportation and it's not working well so if you don't have your car and you live in the suburbs you just figure out you know it, it's kind of hard to find a way to to survive. Poor people need to be more integrated in the system and in places where jobs are created and where jobs are and to get just a more diverse and what I call organically uh, mixed income and mixed um, use um, communities because if you look at what happened with the public housing after Katrina is that they turned the public housing into mixed income neighborhood and the problem is uh, what they want, what the official city officials want, it's 
to uh, improve quality of life and to uh, give poor people a chance to live in a neighborhood or communities that is diverse. But the problem is, first, the number of people that are allowed to come back in those areas are, is very, very low. And secondly, it's if you look at the long-term dynamics, it's a problem because in the long term, those people will be all priced out of the community or rich people will move away because they just don't want to live close to someone that is getting you know a rent from the federal uh, government and uh, that just stay in the porch all day long and dealing drugs and stuff like this or you know not just being in criminal activities but doing nothing one thing you talked about in your talk was that there were that after Katrina there was a, a massive influx of uh, uh, immigrant workers, and that actually spiked, sort of created a crime epidemic in itself. Yes, absolutely. After Katrina, what happened is that um, because of uh, the need to rebuild the city, uh, a lot of people from Central America came uh, to rebuild the city, but uh, most of those people were illegal. So they didn't have any protection. And what happened is that those people were, um, because they were illegal, they didn't have a bank account. So they were always working with cash on them. And they were called the working ATMs because they were always victimized um, because people knew they were working with uh, um, a large amount of money on them. So the problem is if you look at the crime data and the official crime data, uh, this number will not you know, show just because it it's not reported it's not reported and there was also a, um, you also saw a spike in um, reported crime in, in murders uh, immediately after Katrina what, what what were the reasons you found behind that I think what is very important to focus on is that in 2005 everybody has to evacuate the city of New Orleans uh, including the criminals and uh, criminals involved in the criminal um, in the drug trade and what happened happened is most of those people went to Houston and uh, in 2006 what happened uh, in, in during the summer is that people um, from uh, Houston came back a different pace but they came back and what happened is that the criminals that were um, moved to Houston after Katrina they didn't fit their environment their new environment because the criminal justice system in Houston is very different from the criminal justice in uh, in New Orleans. So you've got a, you've got a group of people who um, weren't able to have any income in Houston because they couldn't commit crimes, or it was more difficult for them to commit commit crimes. And so when they came back, they were more able able ready to commit crimes. There's a lot of factors here. Actually, the mm. problem with um, drug trade is that in Houston it's very different. Uh, in Houston, you have gangs that are extremely structured. Uh, that's what we call the um, vertically structured gangs. It means that the gangs or the, the, the creeps or the bloods, you know, gangs from uh, Houston or, or around the United States are um, organized and they have territories and they know exactly who is the leader and who is, you know, dealing drug. And the problem is when 
criminal uh, from from New Orleans came after Katrina, they they weren't as organized as uh, the Crips and the Blood were. So, so it's very difficult for them to integrate into the yes. criminal society of, of Houston. It was difficult, but the main reason, if you really have to focus on one reason, is the fact that the criminal justice system is very different in Houston. So where will your research be going in the future, Pauline? Okay, so, so what is interesting is the approach of crime as a risk, which means that we try to understand why a place or a neighborhood or a community is vulnerable to crime and what type of crime. Really the point um, of this research is to really um, look at crime as a risk and not just uh, focusing on crime, um, the incidents, the crime data. And so by looking at the factors that contribute to crime, um, then we'll be able to provide some responses that will uh, try to um, deal with those factors. If you really try to connect um, the deep causes of crime, you'll be able to bring responses that will be more um, effective in the long term. Well, fantastic. Thank you for talking to me, Pauline. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. So we've come to the end of episode number seven. And I'd like to say a big thank you to the researchers that took part in this week's show. Uh, that would be Pauline Cottel, who you just heard, and Nicholas Peroni, who you heard at the beginning of the show. We'll be back in a fortnight with our next episode in the same usual format that you're used to. And if you bit of chat, bit of interview. Bit of a chat, bit of an interview. And if you'd like to get in contact, then you find all of our contact details on the website, thegloballab.com. And until next episode, bye-bye. Bye-bye.